Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. One morning in September of 1978, former Arsenal football player Peter Story entered his pub, the Jolly Farmers. It had just opened for business, which meant 33-year-old Story had drinking to attend to. He took his favorite seat in the back corner of the bar, ordered his first pint of beer, and cracked open a newspaper. He checked the Arsenal score from the previous night and their league standings. The team was firmly middle of the pack, not as good as their glory years eight years ago when Story was their starting midfielder. Served them right for getting rid of him when they did. A few minutes after he sat down, Story was interrupted by the sound of a large group entering the pub. He looked up, expecting to see the usual rowdy crew stopping in for an early drink. But he didn't recognize the group of men approaching him. Story tried to size them up. Maybe they were football fans who wanted to meet the former Arsenal star. When they got closer, Story realized they weren't fans at all. They were plainclothes police officers, and they had their handcuffs at the ready. The police didn't want to see Peter Story, star Arsenal defender and feared hatchet man. They were after Peter Story, criminal mastermind. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we covered the 16-year career of Arsenal defender Peter Story as he garnered a reputation for physical brutality and recklessness on the football pitch. 
This week, we'll explore how Story's career as a hatchet man translated into a chaotic life of crime after his retirement. Peter Story experienced all the ups and downs of a career in English football. He had signed with Arsenal in 1960 at the age of 15 and survived the slow and grueling ascent to become a first-team starter. He played for a struggling club but grew to be an instrumental part of a championship run that ended with Arsenal achieving a prestigious double, winning both the English Football Championship and the FA Cup. Story enjoyed all the benefits of being a famous football player, the partying, the fame, the women. He was on top of the world. Then he experienced the excruciating decline of both his team and his career. He suffered numerous injuries. They limited his playing time and his effectiveness, while the team around him descended back into mediocrity. As his playing career faded and his team's success evaporated, his personal life followed suit. He watched two marriages collapse and increasingly relied on alcohol to keep him going. In 1977, Arsenal sold Story's contract to another football club. Soon after, he called it quits on his athletic career. His body wasn't up to the challenge anymore, but most importantly, his heart wasn't in it anymore. He was no longer the 15-year-old kid who dreamed of playing for Arsenal. Instead, Story took refuge in his pub, the Jolly Farmers. It had become his second home. By 1978, a year into his retirement, his football career felt like a past life. He barely kept in contact with his Arsenal teammates, and he had a new set of drinking buddies. His new friends weren't football players, but they did have their own team of sorts. A criminal gang. Two of his new friends from the pub were John and Tony Barry, a pair of brothers who owned and operated a nearby nightclub called the Regency Club. The Barry brothers were infamous because of the role they played in bringing down another pair of criminal brothers, the Cray twins. Ronnie and Reggie Cray were two of the most feared and high-profile gangsters in 1960s London, identical twins who established a protection racket in London's East End. The Barry Brothers Regency Club had fallen under the control of the Cray twins' so-called protection. While the Crays were eventually taken down and imprisoned after they murdered one of their own men, Jack McVitie, who was a regular at the Regency Club. The Barry brothers were accused of helping the Crays lure McVitie away from the Regency Club to be murdered, but they were ultimately acquitted. Eight years later, and still running the Regency Club, the Barry brothers were regulars at Peter Story's pub. Story knew about their violent history, but it didn't prevent him from befriending them. Eventually, this camaraderie moved past having a few pints at the pub. In the summer of 1978, the Barry brothers approached Story with a less-than-legal investment opportunity. The Barry brothers wanted to manufacture counterfeit half-sovereigns, 22-carat gold coins the size of nickels. The British government had long since stopped the continuous manufacturing of these gold coins, though they did still occasionally mint special-edition commemorative half-sovereigns. In the summer of 1978, a half-sovereign was worth about 12 pounds, or 87 U.S. dollars today. 
The Barry brothers wanted Story to loan them 2,000 pounds, about 15,000 US dollars today, to buy a coin press. They planned to fashion counterfeit half-sovereign coins out of fake gold, then sell these fake coins as jewelry. In his memoir, Story claimed that he wasn't sure it was illegal to manufacture counterfeit half-sovereigns because he didn't know if they were still legal tender. But even if he didn't realize that making the coins was technically counterfeiting, he still knew it was a scam. Story thought it was essentially the same as selling knockoff designer handbags. Nothing criminal, but not something he wanted to be involved in regardless. He turned the Berry brothers down. And yet, the Berry brothers had a persistence that Story grew to respect. Their relentlessness was like his own tenacity on the football pitch. They returned to the pub every night, asking Story again and again if he'd reconsidered their proposition, emphasizing their friendship and loyalty. Well, eventually, Story started to seriously consider their offer. Freshly removed from football, and with no other real career prospects, Peter Story was confronting a question that all retired athletes face. What next? Story had enough savings from his arsenal days to comfortably live on for the moment, but he needed a plan moving forward. With no real formal education and no marketable skills other than football, Story understood that smart investing would be a key part of his future. He had already invested in the pub and a minicab company, but was looking for more opportunities when the Barry brothers came knocking. Well, Story knew the rumors about the Barry brothers. Getting involved with them carried some risk. But they were his friends, and their plan didn't seem that far-fetched. Eventually, the Barry brothers wore him down. One day in the late summer of 1978, Story finally agreed to invest in their counterfeiting operation. He took 2,000 pounds in cash from his safe and personally handed it to John Barry, who smiled and thanked him as he took the money and left. Story later called that decision the stupidest act of his life. But in the moment, it didn't seem like a big deal. After Story gave the Barry brothers the 2,000 pounds they asked for, he promptly forgot all about it. Until one day in late September of 1978, when Story was approached by Charlie Black, one of the Berry Brothers' associates. Black handed Story a die cast, a hard piece of metal engraved with a coin's design. This particular die was engraved with the design of a counterfeit half-sovereign. Charlie Black asked if Story could keep the die in his safe in the bar. Story agreed without thinking about it. The next morning, when the Jolly Farmers opened for business, Story took his usual place with his usual pint. Then he was suddenly greeted by a dozen plainclothes policemen streaming through the pub doors. The presence of law enforcement in Story's pub wasn't unusual. Through the years, many policemen had become regulars there, drinking alongside the criminals they fought. However, these policemen weren't there to drink. They were members of the Serious Crime Squad. And they were there for Peter's story. Two of them walked up and asked to look inside his safe. Story did as he was told. When he opened the safe, the policeman instantly grabbed the die. They knew exactly what they were looking for. With the evidence they needed in hand, the police locked down the bar and searched the premises. Then they arrested Peter's story. Up next... 
Peter Story tries to prove his innocence. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now back to the story. In late 1978, 33 year old retired football defender Peter Story was looking ahead to the next chapter of his life. He spent most of his time at the pub he owned, drinking with an assortment of colorful characters. Two of the most colorful were the criminal Barry brothers. They eventually roped Story into a counterfeit coin scheme. A few weeks after Story gave the Barry brothers seed money to buy a coin press, an associate of the Barry brothers named Charlie Black asked Story to hold onto a coin press die for him. The very next day, the police burst into Story's pub, found the die, and arrested Story. Story immediately suspected that he'd been set up. The Barry brothers must have known the police were coming and decided to make him the fall guy. In addition to Story's arrest, the police also found the coin press itself and apprehended those on the scene. The entire criminal enterprise had come crashing down, and Peter Story was at the center of it. He was taken to the Serious Crime Squad's headquarters, where he was questioned about his part in the counterfeiting scheme. The detectives suspected that Story was more than an investor. They believed he was the ringleader of the whole operation. As the police interrogated him, Story acknowledged that he had given his money to the Barry brothers, but he rejected the idea that he was some sort of criminal mastermind. When Story asked to speak to a lawyer, his request was ignored, as were his other attempts to reach anyone outside the police station. Story spent the next three and a half days inside a dingy holding cell before finally being hauled in front of a magistrate. He was formally charged with conspiracy to manufacture counterfeit gold coins and fraud, then released on bail. The charges were serious. If convicted, he was looking at a lengthy prison sentence, possibly life imprisonment. To fight these charges, Story turned to his friends at the pub and found a solicitor willing to represent him in court. A solicitor who had coincidentally risen to prominence representing the Cray twins. Story appeared in court with six others to answer for these crimes. Neither of the Barry brothers nor Charlie Black was among those charged. As the days passed, Story began to put together exactly what had happened. He heard from other criminals that Charlie Black wasn't a business associate of the Barrys. He was actually a police informant and provocateur who snuck his way into various criminal enterprises and brought them down. The serious crime squad had a grudge against one of the Barry brothers' associates because his testimony had ruined one of their cases. And they decided to use Charlie Black to set all of them up. Peter's story was simply collateral damage. Story was eager to prove he wasn't a criminal, but he kept breaking the law. In January 1979, 33-year-old Story was out on bail and awaiting trial in the counterfeiting case when he had yet another run-in with the police. Well, at the time, alcohol licensing laws prohibited pubs from selling drinks after 11 p.m. 
This regulation was often lightly enforced, and Story's Pub, like many others in the area, regularly served alcohol past 11. On one late January night in 1979, Story was in his usual spot at the Jolly Farmers, drinking and enjoying the evening with his pub friends. Just after midnight, the party was interrupted by 20 uniformed policemen who barged in and demanded to see the pub's manager and owner. Story, drunk and desperate to avoid another stint in a holding cell, jolted out of his seat and sprinted to the bar's back exit. He managed to escape. But he still had to face the consequences as the pub's majority owner. He was ultimately fined 180 pounds, nearly 1,300 U.S. dollars today. The fine was less important than the message Story believed the raid was sending. The police were after him. Thanks to his celebrity and his criminal friends, he was a high-profile target. Taking down Peter Story would make a splash in the newspapers. Story began to believe he would be found guilty no matter what and sent away for the rest of his life. He couldn't let that happen. To avoid jail time, Story had to do what he had done his entire life, play defense. Only this time, he couldn't win the game through a bone-crushing tackle. He would have to be more precise. In need of advice, Story once again turned to his friends at the pub. He needed to talk to someone who had experience with the criminal court and knew how to play the game. His lawyers could only help him so much. He needed someone who could think outside the box. That person was Tommy Wisby, one of London's most infamous criminals. In 1963, Wisby and 14 others robbed a high-class train, making out with 2.6 million pounds. Today, that would equal more than 52 million U.S. dollars. The robbers were all eventually captured, and Wisby served 12 and a half years in prison for his role in the heist. But his time behind bars did little to reform him. Wisby later said that his only regret was getting caught. By 1979, 49-year-old Tommy Wisby was living a quieter life. He, too, had invested in a pub in Islington and would occasionally drink at the Jolly Farmer. If anyone understood the reality of what Story was facing, it was Tommy Wisby. So Story approached Wisby at his pub, bought a round of beers, and explained his predicament. Wisby stayed silent and sober as he listened to Story's tale. Once Story was finished, Wisby bombarded him with questions. Why did he agree to give the Berry brothers the money in the first place? Did he expect to see money in return? Why did he agree to hide the die in the safe? When Story couldn't come up with any decent answers, Wisby told the ex-footballer that he was in serious trouble. He told Story, You've been fitted up, and you're going to go down. Story was horrified. He had hoped to hear the exact opposite. He listened, stunned, as Wisby explained that the prosecution would most likely convince a jury of his guilt by association and land him in prison. However, Wisby added, there was a way out of this. Story was prepared to do anything. As he had learned in his football playing days, he could beat any opponent as long as he gave it his all and was willing to bend the rules a little bit. So Story asked his friend how he could get out of this perilous legal situation. Wisby suggested a drastic move. Story needed to flee the country. 
Specifically, Wisby suggested that Story go to Spain and lay low while the trial was taking place. After the trial, Story could return and claim he was being threatened by the real criminals behind the scheme. This would trigger a new trial for Story individually. Without the baggage of being tried alongside career criminals, Story stood a better chance of being acquitted. Story convinced himself that Wisby's plan was logical. After all, he hadn't really committed much of a crime. He just needed to be given a fair opportunity to prove it. So he decided to make a break for Spain. There was one problem, though. He didn't have enough money. He needed a way to make a significant amount of cash very quickly. There was only one method through which Story could make enough money in a short amount of time, and it wasn't anything legal. Story became convinced that in order to prove his innocence, he needed to commit another crime. Story turned to the most lucrative business he knew, running a brothel. He already had a contact who ran a massage parlor and was willing to loan him two sex workers. Story rented a cheap apartment on a six-month lease, printed cards advertising his new venture, named the Calypso Massage Parlor, and spread them around to attract customers. Story may have been an innocent tertiary figure in the counterfeit operation, but in this new criminal scheme, he was the boss. It wasn't long before the brothel was bustling with customers and Story was making over 500 pounds a week, a little over 3,000 US dollars today. The business expanded and Story hired a third sex worker. But the parlor quickly became a handful, so Story decided to handle his new venture exactly as he did the pub, handing it off to a manager. As soon as he could, Story would sneak away to Spain to wait out the counterfeiting trial, which was set to begin at some point the next year. He figured he'd have enough money to leave England and lay low in Spain with just a few more weeks of business. But in December of 1979, Story was inside the massage parlor one busy night when he heard the now familiar sound of a group of heavy footsteps approaching the door. It was the police. They had heard from an informant that Story was running a brothel and moved quickly to shut it down. Unlike the last time the police raided Story's place of business, there was no back exit to escape through. The police barged inside and had Story in handcuffs before he could even consider running. Up next, Peter Story pays for his crimes. Now, back to the story. In December of 1979, 34-year-old former football player Peter Story was squaring off with a tougher opponent than he ever had on the field, the British criminal justice system. Because of his connection to a coin counterfeit operation, Story might be sent to prison for life. He became convinced his only way out of it was to flee the country. He tried to make enough money to leave by running a brothel, but he was quickly discovered by the police and jailed again. In his attempt to avoid incarceration, he'd only made his overall situation worse. On December 22, 1979, Peter Story appeared in court and pleaded guilty to running a brothel. The magistrates judging his case declared that Story's crimes were deplorable. They handed down a harsh sentence, a fine of nearly 1,000 pounds and a six-month suspended jail sentence. The suspended sentence was a silver lining. 
If Story completed a probation period without breaking any rules established by the court, he'd avoid prison. Story deemed it the worst Christmas of his life. While he took some solace in the fact that the three women working in his brothel were not charged with any crime, his own reputation was still ruined. Peter Story was only two years removed from being a professional football player, but his life was in shambles. By early 1980, he was struggling to make ends meet. Not only was his brothel shuttered, but he no longer had the pub. He was bought out by his ex-wife, Kathy. All he had left was the minicab company, and Story had to occasionally drive cabs himself for extra income. The counterfeiting charges were still lurking, with the trial date still not set for reasons Story couldn't explain. Story called his life at this time a nightmare. He had no permanent home, bouncing between cheap apartments. His legal battles had left him in desperate financial straits. To make matters worse, he owed money for the minicab company's cars that he was increasingly unable to pay. Luckily, an opportunity presented itself to help him with the minicab situation, but that opportunity was, of course, another crime. Story needed some money fast to keep himself afloat and avoid bankruptcy. Another unsavory acquaintance of Story's offered to buy two cars from the minicab company. Story sold him the two cars for a grand total of 2,300 pounds. The problem was that Story didn't own those cars. They were leased. The sale was, effectively, straightforward theft. Well, the numbers in the long term make no sense. Story had initially paid £10,000 for both of those cars, and the remaining payments on them would cost significantly more than what he had received in the illegal sale. But he was in such an immediate financial crunch that he felt as though he had no choice. But he quickly ran out of money again, and the car company eventually looked into the situation. As soon as they realized that the cars were gone, the police were called in. Story was arrested and charged with stealing the two cars. After his arrest for car theft, Story ended up in bankruptcy court too. Story was jailed for two nights after failing to show up to a hearing and then charged with contempt of court. He spent those nights at Pentonville Prison, located only two miles away from Arsenal Football Club's home stadium. Less than 10 years before, Story was a football star at the peak of his prowess, playing in front of tens of thousands of fans. Now, he was a petty criminal, spending his nights in jail and his days struggling to pay his bills. In September of 1980, 35-year-old Peter Story's counterfeiting case finally went to trial. He heard the judge assigned to their case was known for being fair and allowed himself to feel a bit of optimism. His personal life was also improving. He was now in a happy relationship with a woman named Gill. He began to see the light at the end of the tunnel and was looking forward to putting his criminal escapades behind him. That optimism proved unfounded. On the first day of the trial, Story learned that a new judge was assigned to the case. This one was known as a hanging judge. He always seemed to side with the prosecution and was not known for his leniency. Story's lawyer advised him to plead guilty and hopefully get a lighter sentence. But Story was never one to back down from a fight. When his name was called during the trial, he stubbornly pleaded not guilty. As the trial went on, 
Story could tell that the case was not going to go his way. The judge seemed to have made his mind up already. He even initially refused to grant the defendant's bail. Story eventually changed his plea to guilty in a last-ditch attempt to avoid a lengthy sentence, but it didn't make a difference. On September 15, 1980, 35-year-old Peter Story was sentenced to three years incarceration. It wasn't life in prison, but it was still far more than he'd hoped for. As he heard his fate, Story felt a surge of righteous indignation. It was as if he was back on the pitch in 1965, and a Leeds defender had just headbutted him to the ground. He was shocked, angry, and eager to retaliate. He wanted to run over to the judge and knock him down. But this was a courtroom, not a football pitch. Instead of tackling the judge, Story quietly surrendered himself and was taken to Wandsworth Prison in southwest London. Adjusting to prison life was not easy for Peter Story. It was a far cry from spending a few nights in the local jail. His first few weeks in prison, he was kept in a cramped cell with three other inmates for 23 hours a day. They were only allowed one hour outside in the rundown prison yard. His cell didn't even have a toilet. Each prisoner was instead given their own bucket. Well, despite the grimy conditions, the worst part for Story was the monotony. There was nothing to fill the endless hours. Inmates competed for kitchen or cleaning duties simply because it broke up the boredom. After six weeks inside the prison, just when things looked bleakest, Story was offered a lifeline. His lawyer had successfully appealed the conviction and Story was granted bail. He could leave prison while he awaited another trial in the counterfeiting case. Thanks to an old friend, Story got a job doing small-scale newspaper deliveries. It allowed him to legally make ends meet while he waited for his court case to proceed, or for him to get thrown back in prison. For nine months, Story kept his head above water. Eventually, his appeal was heard. Despite Story's firm belief in his innocence, the original conviction was upheld. He was thrown back into prison in the summer of 1981 to finish this three-year sentence. However, there was a small silver lining. This time, he was sent to Spring Hill Open Prison, a significant step up in conditions from Wandsworth Prison. He had access to a toilet and was able to shower more than once a week. Fresh air was easier to come by, and he picked up a job gardening to increase his outdoor time. He was even able to play some football with the prison's team, becoming its captain. Meanwhile, his car theft crime went to trial on April 29, 1982. 36-year-old Peter Story pleaded guilty and was sentenced to six months in prison to be served concurrently with his counterfeiting sentence. A year into his imprisonment, his girlfriend Gil visited him with a startling piece of news. She was pregnant. She also had a demand they had to get married before the baby was born. Story was allowed a temporary release from prison so he could honor her request. It was a small ceremony, and none of Story's old friends, either from his Arsenal days or his days running the pub, attended. When the party was over, Story's father drove him back to prison. Gill gave birth to a baby boy soon after, on November 4, 1981. They named him Peter Story Jr. A year later, Gill gave birth to their second son, Anthony. A few weeks after Anthony's birth, 
and just in time for Christmas, Peter Story was released from prison on parole. Now that he was a free man, Story was eager to put his criminal history behind him and live on the right side of the law. To support his new family, he began selling girls' kilts from a roadside stall. It proved to be surprisingly lucrative. Story's life continued to rebound over the next few years. He made enough on his kilt sales to afford a larger apartment for his ever-expanding family. His third son, Jamie, was born on September 4, 1987, just shy of Story's 42nd birthday. Unfortunately, Story's domestic bliss wouldn't last forever. By the last years of the 1980s, he once again found himself in trouble. His finances were rocky, exacerbated by an economic recession. His personal life was no better. By 1987, he and his wife were only together for their children's sake. In 1990, 45-year-old Story again needed some extra money to make ends meet. His kilt stall was no longer as profitable as it used to be. Once again, an acquaintance of Story's emerged to offer a possible venture. And once again, that venture involved a criminal act. This acquaintance planned to buy copies of pornographic films in the Netherlands and smuggle them into the UK, where they could be sold for a significant profit. The sale of pornographic videotapes was illegal, but old habits died hard for Peter Story. He agreed to be part of the plan. Story and his friend drove to Dover, took a ferry to Calais, France, then drove up the coast to Rotterdam in the Netherlands. There, they bought 20 pornographic VHS tapes and hid them inside the spare tire of Story's car. Story was nervous through the entire journey. He could barely believe that he had let himself be talked into yet another criminal scheme. When they reached Calais and boarded the ferry to Dover, he finally started to calm down. All they needed to do now was drive from Dover to London and they'd be home free. But Story's optimism was misplaced. As soon as the ferry reached Dover, customs officials decided to inspect Story's car. It didn't take them long to discover the contraband VHS tapes. Story had been caught red-handed. In October of 1990, he was convicted of importing obscenity and served four weeks in jail. When Story was released in late 1990, he went back to being a minicab driver. He once again tried to live a quiet, crime-free life. He managed to make a decent living, working his way up the ladder. Eventually, he became a limousine driver for rich clientele, including the royal family of the United Arab Emirates and the Emir of Qatar. His marriage with Gil ended in the early 90s, permanently this time. Story moved on. He began living with a French woman named Danielle in 1996 and tried once again to live a quiet, crime-free life. So far, his life on the straight and narrow has stuck. The game of football has changed since Peter Story's glory days. It's less violent, more orderly, and more lucrative for the players. There are no more hatchet men who specialize in punishing opposing players. Although the game has moved on from his style of play, Story still watches Arsenal games, and he still roots for Arsenal defenders to take down their opponents by any means necessary.
Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the life and crimes of Peter Story, we found his autobiography, True Story, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 